Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, January 26th. The war in the Middle East is now 112 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research and Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I don't know about you, but I get the sense that the mainstream media has lost interest in the Middle East. This isn't especially surprising because election season is heating up after all, but that doesn't make the war waged by Iran and its proxies against Israel and America any less important. In many ways, it has greater importance now, and that's why we do this three times a week, 26 times and counting so far. So keep tuning in to the FDD Morning Brief. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by Seth Mandel. He's a talented journalist whose tweets make me laugh and his writing makes me think. He's senior editor at Commentary Magazine. But before we talk to Seth, I want to talk about leverage, American leverage, and simply put, how we don't use it. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met with his Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi, on Wednesday. After some smiling photo ops, the two leaders agreed to deepen cooperation. To be clear, this is a NATO ally vowing closer ties with the regime currently wreaking havoc around the Middle East, dispatching its proxies to attack American forces. Oh, and Turkey is a state sponsor of Hamas, the terror group that sparked this widening war in the Middle East. On the very same day of this meeting, the United States announced that it would be selling F-16 fighter jets to Ankara. Those fighter jets were leveraged to change Turkish behavior, and we didn't use it. Let's look back three weeks ago, January 3rd. As the Qataris failed repeatedly to release more Israeli hostages, the Biden administration quietly inked a deal with Qatar for a 10-year extension of the U.S. military presence in their country. We could have waited. We could have demanded the release of more hostages before signing the agreement. We could have demanded that they kick Hamas out of Doha. We had leverage and we didn't use it. Yesterday, Israeli media released a recording of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu expressing frustration that the Qataris, a state sponsor of Hamas, had failed to release more hostages. Again, America could have used that moment to press the Qataris to release the hostages and to, uh, to halt their support to Hamas. Instead, a State Department spokesman declared that Qatar has been, quote, an integral, irreplaceable, key regional partner. Again, leverage lost. Oh, and all that talk about UNRWA corruption in recent months, the opportunity for reform has just been squandered. The U.S. announced that yesterday, the U.N. agency that has partnered with Hamas in Gaza since 2007 now has, quote, a role to play, end quote, in the day after. No demands for reform. Nothing. Seriously, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of this. We're squandering one opportunity after another. We're not using our leverage with adversaries and unreliable allies. If anything, it looks like the U.S. government is only turning the screws on one country. We threaten to withhold ammo. We push them on compromises they're not ready to make. Our legislators threaten to cut aid. Any know, anyone know what country I'm talking about here? I know you do. Now for your major headlines. Headline one. Yet another hostage deal is in the works. This time it's Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, joining David Barnea, the head of the Mossad, in discussions with their Egyptian and Qatari counterparts. As I mentioned, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu expressed his disappointment with the Qataris the other day in a recording that was leaked by the Israeli press. The Qataris responded by slamming him, saying that he tanked hostage talks for political gain. I carry no water for Netanyahu, but this is ridiculous. If he brought the hostages home, it would boost his popularity and buy him time to devise an election strategy during the phased exchanges that will be invariably part of any deal. So what's going on? If any actor is motivated to reject a hostage deal, it's Hamas. The group knows that as soon as the hostages are released, Israel will have no incentive to keep talking. So they're dragging this out and the Qataris are helping. Let us not forget the Qataris are Hamas patrons. They are fighting to keep Hamas alive amidst the most serious threat to the terror group's existence. So let me say it again, slowly, this tiny, corrupt, terror-sponsoring emirate is not an honest broker. Headline two, the Israeli Air Force struck an Iranian airstrip in Lebanon yesterday. Here's what we know. The strike was foretold by the Israelis months ago when Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant identified the airfield as a threat. I personally wondered why the Israelis didn't just take it out back then. If anything, it seemed like the Israelis were trying to avoid a conflict. So does that mean the Israelis are no longer trying to avoid, avoid a conflict? In a word, yes. The Israelis are slowly but surely knocking out the strategic assets of Hezbollah in Iran in Lebanon. In response to nearly every attack out of Lebanon by Hezbollah, Israel continues to get the better of the Iran-backed group. Hezbollah has lost more, a lot more than the Israelis have. But this has come at a price. Tens of thousands of Israelis cannot live in the northern communities right now. Also, we should all note that this is a dynamic that is only effective so long as Hezbollah and Iran refrain from a major response. So far, so good, I suppose. But it won't last forever. Israel needs to be careful. A major escalation is developing. And despite what you hear, this is a war that nobody wants. And headline three, the Jerusalem Post reports that South African banks are providing Hamas with the means to move money worldwide. Surprised? I'm not. The government that brought a preposterous genocide case against Israel at the ICJ is also a facilitator for Hamas finance. I'll tell you a little secret. South Africa has been rotten for years. When I was a terror finance analyst at the U.S. Treasury, we were tracking Hamas and al-Qaeda financiers in that country, and their government didn't want to hear about it. That made them complicit, in my view. So now what? I don't believe for a minute that the United States will target South Africa with sanctions. I don't believe that they will receive so much as a strongly worded letter, especially now that the kangaroo court at The Hague has elected to allow this preposterous genocide case against Israel to move forward. But the bill will come due. Hamas support is an important indicator of a government's willingness to support other terror groups. So keep an eye out for more FDD work on this self-declared Hamas enabler. Tracking bad people and their bad money? That's what we do. Okay, moving on. I'm pleased to introduce you to Seth Mandel. Seth is a senior editor these days for Commentary Magazine, where I'm a contributing editor, by the way. Seth has worked for the Washington Examiner and for the New York Post. He was also a national security fellow at a think tank you may have heard of called FDD. Welcome, Seth Mandel. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Morning. Great to have you here. Let me start with your most recent piece on the Qataris. You rip into this tiny Gulf state for its recent expression of outrage toward Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You want to break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that basically what happened was 
Bibi Netanyahu is recorded uh, in a meeting with hostages or the families of hostages where he's talking about uh, why we why they're dealing with Qatar at all. It sounds like the families are frustrated and I don't blame them. The families sound frustrated that Qatar hasn't done more to bring these hostages home. Now, you have to understand that they have, you know, as you've said, it's like a with great power comes great responsibility sort of thing. They have responsibility. They have obligations because they are a main funding conduit to Hamas and because they're they and Turkey have the direct line. They have the bat phone number and pick up and call them. And so Bibi was basically explaining this to the the families, family members of Israeli hostages saying, look, they have the leverage. And so, you know, we want them to use it, but we've got to deal with them. And I want to bring the hostages home. And the best way to do that is to deal with regimes that can pick up the phone, call Hamas and say, it's time to do something. And so, you know, his point was that Qatar is not a good faith actor in the broader Middle East, but he wasn't actually arguing it's time to, you know, we're not going to deal with Qatar anymore. They're the worst. He was actually trying to explain to the families, like, we all know the Qataris are bad actors here, but here's why we have to deal with them because reality is reality and they have leverage and we want our people home. So let's use that leverage. And the Qataris like freaked out. I mean, their foreign ministry put out this statement saying that, you know, Bibi was uh, for his own purposes, uh, basically running the uh, the hostage negotiations off the road. And, you know, as you said earlier, first of all, that's insane because it's very clear that Netanyahu is deeply affected by the pressure around him to bring the hostages home. Now, that is obvious. They're talking about a deal right now. And, the you know, we've had reports that said the Israelis offered a two-month ceasefire. Then they moved down to a month ceasefire. They're offering things like enabling the Gazans in the south, taking shelter in the south, to go back north sooner than I think the Israelis would have planned for. Otherwise, they're offering extended ceasefire times, which will also limit Israeli surveillance in the Strip. I mean, they're at, they're offering a lot. So the idea that Bibi is trying to destroy these negotiations is, is obviously silly. But the larger point is that the Qataris don't seem to like they don't seem to understand how to play at this level. They have more power and obligations in these Hamas negotiations than they're acting like. And they are misinterpreting statements by the Israelis that are actually justifying the Qataris' participation in this whole thing. They're misinterpreting those statements as, uh, you know, backroom insults and stuff like that. I mean, what are the Qataris saying behind closed doors about Bibi Netanyahu? You know, is, is it anything nearly as nice as what he said? So, you know, I just, I think that they're playing, I think it's really amateurish, honestly. And I think it's frustrating to see you can do more, you have more power, you have more obligations, and you're kind of just, you're, you're kind of blowing it here. 
Well, they, and they are blowing it. I think the only question in my mind is whether they're deliberately doing this, whether they're dragging this out. And I guess we'll wait and see. Let me ask you about another piece that you wrote recently about what you call the new global blacklist. This is a blacklist against Jews, right? Yeah. The first thing that that brought this to my attention was the silliest, which was there was this report, not a report, I mean, the Telegraph, the UK Telegraph had the internal emails from British Airways where they were explaining why they had decided to pause the inclusion of a sitcom, a British sitcom called Hapless in their in-flight entertainment. So, you know, in-flight entertainment means, I don't know, what, 35 movies, 20 TV shows, a bunch of cartoons, usually games. Like, it's not, this is the movie we're showing anymore, right? Um, so they wanted to pause even offering one of their many shows because hapless is about a uh essentially the jew it's like a fictionalization of the jewish chronicle almost it's basically a british jewish uh journalist and it's not about israel it's not about the war this isn't fauda the netflix show about actual anti-terrorism uh in israel and the territories this was a show about a british jewish guy and they uh, were nervous about having this in-flight entertainment. And things sort of spiraled from there. And eventually we got to the point where the, uh, the International Ice Hockey Federation was about to host this tournament in Bulgaria. And it didn't want, initially it was considering, I think, even hosting the tournament in Israel, but not going to do that moved to Bulgaria, but they decided to pause, let's say, the inclusion of the Israeli under 20 team, under 20 years old, right? Um, and that was because they felt, uh, we're not sure we can protect them. We're not sure we can protect others. We know we're basically going to be a target. Eventually, they backpedaled and backpedaled and backpedaled far enough to get back to letting them play, essentially. But for weeks, this went on with even the NHL sort of nudging them, saying yeah. you, you can't just you can't punish the targets of terrorism. Right. I mean, you're saying Israeli teams are targets so they can't play that that's not something you can say out loud, right? That's what we're, we don't think we can. They kind of did though, right? And they did. And they did. And <laughs> yeah. I thought the NHL's uh, statement wasn't strong enough, honestly, right. but it was at least a recognition that you guys, you can't you get it together. You can't say that. So that was one. So that was the international uh, ice hockey federation. And then we had more serious incidents like Sagiv Yechezkel, who was an Israeli is an Israeli born soccer player who was playing for a Turkish professional team. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he scored a goal and he had written on his, on the tape around his wrist a uh, hundred days. And there was a star of David next to it. So he was, it was sort of a shout out to the hostages that we were right around the 100-day mark of their captivity, and he was thinking of them and 
you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about you. This is for you sort of thing, though. He didn't say we're thinking of you. He didn't say this is for you. He just he had them written on his, you know, anybody who's played sports knows sometimes you write things on your tape. Sometimes you write a number on your shoe. Sometimes you write, you know, this. These are things that you do. Sometimes you put tape on your jersey. Um, and for this, he was arrested. And for his own safety, I think, also deported. He was arrested and then sent to the airport. I don't think that he even had time to stop home and pack a bag. And he came home to Israel to this really nice welcome, obviously. But he, a professional soccer player, had just been kicked out of, you know, a NATO ally country for putting a Jewish star on the tape on his wrist. I mean, the things that are considered provocative when Israelis or when Jews do them. So that was that there that he was not the last Turkish player to run into trouble. A second Turkish player also ran into trouble. So now we're seeing a kind of crackdown is the problem that it starts with. Oh, that was provocative. We can't have that. But provocative sometimes means, uh, you know, maybe sit out this game or it doesn't mean you get arrested by the Secret Services and then put on a plane. And, yeah. and deported out of the country, but this is happening. And so there were other situations like this. There was, you know, an, uh, the under 19 captain of South Africa's cricket team was Correct. demoted yeah. um, for his uh, for being Jewish. He was the captain of the team. And they said, you know, we're not going to kick him off the team or not let him play. But maybe he shouldn't be captain. This David Teeger fellow, uh, because, you know. He's pro-Israel. He's pro-Jewish and, you know, all that stuff. So hitting international sports. Now, I understand that this these aren't the Olympics, but I think that the Olympics, the point of the Olympics has always been that you set these things aside. Right. And so I like to think of international sports as following at least the same sort of set of moral guidelines here that we we have things that are not politics and not war so that the world doesn't go completely crazy and everybody doesn't hate each other and refuse to speak to each other. Um, and they're using international sports and entertainment to undermine that in a very big way. And then there were other problems. There was produced TV producers in Israel are saying that Netflix and others are, are pausing or canceling or holding their deals or their shows that they made. You know, Israel has been very good. I mentioned Fouda before, but Israel has had adaptations also. Some things that you don't know are Israeli shows are really based on Israeli shows. Apparently, Israeli production houses are very good at um, at putting up decent content uh, that is not high cost or high maintenance. And so they were getting very popular. And uh, and the especially the European producers, the studios were uh, are not so comfortable with that now. So it's happening in entertainment, it's happening in sports, and it's it's just a all it is is a Jewish blacklist. I mean, go back to a show about a TV comedy, a sitcom about a guy who's Jewish who works for a newspaper. And that ca- that started this cascade of well, if they can be nervous about showing a Jew on a screen on an airplane, well then we can, you know, we can deport soccer players. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it here. That was a a sobering uh, report on the state of the world. I want to thank you, Seth Mandel, for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan.
Okay, here's what FDD is tracking today. My colleague Rich Goldberg paired up with the newest FDD team member, Bonnie Glick, for an op-ed in The Hill. Bonnie previously was deputy administrator of USAID. We're thrilled she's joined us in, as an adjunct fellow. And Bonnie and Rich detail in this new piece how millions of U.S. tax dollars are being funneled to multilateral institutions working against U.S. interests. This includes UNRWA. It also includes UN Women and the Red Cross. Rich will actually be up on Capitol Hill next week to testify about UNRWA before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This comes as Congress is considering its next moves on federal spending. FDD Sinan Gidi and I published a piece in the Washington Examiner on Tuesday that put a spotlight on a Hamas front group in Turkey. It's called the Association of Jerusalem and Our History, or KUTAD. The NGO, founded by sanctioned Hamas operative Jihad Yarmour, hosts high-profile Hamas leaders at events across Turkey. As Treasury cracks down on sanctions uh, and sanctions, Hamas enablers, KUTAD deserves a closer look. And finally, my colleague from FDD's Cyber Center, Mike Sugden, is out with a new memo examining the vulnerabilities in firmware. This is the code that communicates between the hardware and the software. And Mike says that important American infrastructure, like the electrical grid, will be at risk if the U.S. government doesn't update its outdated guidelines on firmware security. Okay, that's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD. And support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org invest. Thanks for being with us today. I'll see you bright and early on Monday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Thank you.